Hi there, you're very welcome to the special ABP podcast for farm families. I'm Karen Patterson and it's great to be with you back in front of a microphone talking about real stuff that matters to people who live and work in the countryside. It's high summer, usually the show season would be in full swing. Balmoral behind us with Castle Wellen, Antrim, Lurgan, Newry and Clocker Valley all to come. But coronavirus has put the brakes on all of that. The pandemic has disrupted life for all of us, isolating us from our families and friends, colleagues and customers. And so ABP came up with the idea of a series of podcasts to help keep us all feeling more connected. Whether you're anxious about keeping your kids safe on the farm during the holidays or thinking what next for education and jobs in agri-food, then we've got some great people for you to hear from in three 20-minute episodes. So sit back and put the kettle on or turn up the volume in the tractor cab as this time we say hello to some people who could change your approach to the way you farm, people who could save your life. In recent weeks, there's been a spate of tragic accidents on farms. 15 people have died on the island of Ireland in farm accidents this year, 12 in the south and three in Northern Ireland. Three children were among those who died and eight of the victims were over 65. It's prompted ministers north and south to issue a joint statement, urging farmers to be even more aware of farm hazards. The Northern Ireland Air Ambulance was often in attendance. With us today are paramedic Glenn O'Rourke, William Sayers, Anne Doherty, and the chair of the Farm Safety Partnership, Harry Sinclair. Good to see you all and thank you for being with us today. Uh, Glenn, if I can begin with you, I know the Air Ambulance has been very busy during lockdown, lots of calls to farms. What are some of the most common reasons that you might be called to a farm? Hello, Karen. Yeah, most, uh, so we have been very busy and to an average we would do roughly the one to two calls per day and uh, agriculture is, is a huge element of our work. Roughly about 10% of our calls are agriculture related and they can vary in different sort of with the mechanisms of injury and most can be from a fall from height, you're repairing your barn, cattle, um, whether it be your the bulls, the cows, other farm animals, machinery itself, you know, you're working by yourself, isolated in the mornings at nighttime, vehicles as well, whether it be your tractors, the quads, other methods you would use around a farm and with that as well. And slurry, slurry is a big one as well that we would go to. So the list is quite vast, um, but where we have, it's very much common is the, the farmers being remote and rural. That's where we need to get there, there as quick as we can for those. How has the, the lockdown changed things? Why do you think you're getting more calls during lockdown? I think it's changed for many reasons. Pre-COVID, pre-lockdown, most of our calls, 50% were road traffic collisions. But then due to the nature of the lockdown, a lot of cars were then off the road and businesses were stopped. Agriculture wasn't. Agriculture remained. And if anything, it actually became more prevalent. Um, I'm not from a farming community, but I've learned a lot in the last three years working for the Air Ambulance. And the farmers themselves are very resilient and most resourceful community I've ever met. And not having their neighbours to rely upon or local businesses to come and help repair certain elements or help them in the mornings, they become, they would do the jobs themselves. And then immune opinion probably take on a little bit more risk because they know they don't have the help or resources to come and help them do it. And then inevitably that then leads to injury and life-threatening injuries and unfortunately sometimes even fatalities in farms. Yeah, there have been some high profile fatalities this year, Glenn, and I know you were in attendance, particularly at the, the story that 
took so many of us uh, to heart on the North Coast. From a professional perspective, your, your job is to remain calm in the most devastating circumstances. What can you say to families who face that devastating eventuality? If something goes wrong, what's your job when you, when you touch down? Yeah, it's, uh, it is, a, um, as you say, Karen, we are, this is what we do, but equally we are people where we're mums and dads ourselves and, and families, but we've got to remain focused. We're mindful that we as the Air Ambulance go out to people who are critically injured, who need interventions immediately in order to save their life or, or their brains or their limbs. And we're fully aware that the members of the public, their families are seeing their loved ones, their friends suffer the probably the most horrific things they'll ever see. And then to try and display their emotions whenever we arrive. We do want them to stay close to us. It's important that the family sometimes are there with us, but there is a job to do. And we do our, we're very professional in what we do. We're very calm and collected. And it's all down to our training. We would train every day on certain incidents to make sure that whenever we do arrive, we can put our emotions aside and deliver the best care possible in order to help. But we are very, very mindful is that this can have a huge impact on their families. So we know that whatever we say and do will have a long lasting effect longer than what um, the injuries may be. If something were to happen and a farmer phones 999, they're told the air ambulance has been dispatched. What can they do at the scene to help before you touch down? Yeah, they can do. So whenever a farmer or um, somebody from the, the incident has phoned Travel 9, unknown to the end to the farm themselves. There'd be one from myself, a paramedic from the Air Ambulance team, would be listening in. We do only have one helicopter and one resource for the whole of Northern Ireland, so it's important that we do get it right. And that one paramedic will then interrogate the call and decide this aircraft is needed. So I would then go on to the call and then ask for certain, ask certain questions. More about your farm. We fly at 2,000 feet, sometimes in heavy cloud, and so it's important that these minutes do matter. So I may ask, how many barns do you have? Are there any striking features, any unique features? There's two or three barns beside each other. Is there a tractor with its hazard lights on? And all those wee subtle differences can add into a bigger picture for whenever we land. And then equally, I may ask, can you put the farm, uh, any animals away? Is there bulls, is there cows in that one field that we need to land on as well? So we would have a two-way conversation to make sure that we can get there as soon as we can. Yeah, and I suppose it's a really good way to keep the minds of those on the ground active and feeling they're contributing at a time when they probably feel so helpless. Let's bring William in at this point. William, um, your accident happened quite a long time ago now. There were no air ambulances available. Talk us through the circumstances. It was an Easter Monday, uh, 1990, 12 years of age. Uh, putting out slurry in the family farm all day with my friend Jonathan. Came to about quarter to eight at night and uh, my mother called us in for tea. Earlier on in the day, my father told me of the do's and the don'ts of moving machinery and parts and what was the hazards and just to stay away from any moving parts so I wouldn't get injured. And uh, we sat around the table and father was reading the Belfast Telegraph and he says, that'll do you today. And I says, one more load will finish the field. So he says, well, just do that one more load and that'll do you today. So Jonathan went out after finishing his tea and I went out after him. And passing the window, my mother called me back and she says, put on that coat. And I went back and I put on the coat. It was getting wet and cold. Didn't bother zipping it up because I knew it wouldn't be long to his back in again. 
And uh, what happened was, as I went out and everything was going according to plan, uh, the tractor's uh, tanker sucking the slurry up, but it's taken longer than I would like it to take. And I thought, you know, this that vacuum pump maybe is not just working as well as I would like to think it should be. So at the front of the vacuum pump is a little regulator, which regulates the oil into the vacuum pump to create more vacuum. And I thought I would do some alterations that sit at the front of the tanker, one drop of vacuum oil to every four seconds. And as I started to alter this, I could feel a, a tugging sensation. And literally within the next second, I was lying on my mouth and nose in the ground, looking in below the drawbar of the slurry tanker. And I can see Jonathan run away from me in the distance. And at this stage, Karen, I thought life was over. Where am I going to next? And as I lay a while longer, I realised I was still in the same place and shock and horror. I get up onto my feet and look down and there's only socks and underwear on. And I look over to my right hand side and I can see an arm lying about 20 feet away from me. And I know that's my arm. And then I realise I can't see it in my right eye as well because I'm packing the ground and the side of my head. And I thought I've lost the eye as well. And then the words, the harrowing words, the daunting words of a father who loved me and cared for me, Karen, just, just came back to me. Don't go near the PTO shaft. And I knew right away it was all my fault because I disobeyed him. And this was the consequence. And it was too late. Can't rewind the clock back. I walk over to the house. My sister's looking out through a window. And she points out the window and she says, Daddy, William's just passed the street, the window with only one arm. And he comes out running out and he gets me into the car. And, and as we reverse out, Karen, I could see my mother standing at the door with her hand over her mouth. With that face of shock that she'll never leave me. Not even a kiss, not a goodbye, not even to tell me I love you. I can't see you again. Will I see you again? It's an absolute mess. Unrecognisable because of the damage as well. I make my way to Elton Galvin Hospital and as I make my way to Elton Galvin Hospital, my father tells me I'm going to die and I says, why daddy? Well, he says, William, you're holding on to your wind, let go of it. And as I let go of this wind here, which is four inches long today, there's no blood coming out of it. And he says, you must be bleeding inwardly. And he says, you'll close your eyes shortly, son, for the last time. So I'm waiting for this moment of death to overcome me. And it's just an absolute nightmare. Back at the house, Jane went out on the advice of a nurse two weeks previous. Picks up my her brother's arm, brings it into the house and sets it down on the table where I had my tea. And my mother can see this arm of her son sitting on the table, covered in slurry. And uh, she gets all the towel that I dried my hands on and gets all the vegetables out of the freezer and puts my arm into the vegetables and wraps the towel and makes her way out in the Galvin Hospital. And uh, I met an ambulance on the way down the road because they rang 999. Uh, the ambulance had been dispatched for me. And they says, where's the arm? And he's, my father said to the ambulance driver, it's not his arm, I'm concerned about it, it's his life. And they took me to Elton Galvin Hospital where they started to treat me and prepare me for surgery. Such a, a traumatic and, and powerful uh, story, William. It's hard to listen to, and you, you explained it so eloquently. But how did you manage to pick up the pieces? Clearly, you're alive today. I know you lost the arm, but were you able to farm again? Well, Karen, the, the, the staggering thing about it, and, and this message that I'm trying to get across is, is the complacency of us all. And that night when I was lying in the Galvin Hospital, there was a young girl going to a nightclub and she opened the car door and a car came up and took the arm and leg of her. I was in the middle bed with no arms so I could see maybe I wasn't just the worst off in the room 
But over my right hand side, there was a farmer lying beside me as well, who had just fallen over the face of a silo pit. And uh, he had spinal injuries. And he was worse than what I was as well. But what was the chances of two people that night being in a treatment room of a farming incident? And after I was received a fortnight of hospital treatment back out home again, I, I, life was never going to be the same for me. Not only for me, but the, my mother, my father, my sisters, uh, my father's livelihood, uh, my, my education, my career. It was just totally in a mess. And uh, I left in 1993 and went home to the house for, for a year. And my father had spent thousands of pounds building this whole greenfield site, more or less, for me. And, and that was all shell for him. And I felt sorry for him. I felt guilt. I felt sorry. I, I felt how a big of a, a dis disaster it was in some ways. And then, you know, we're no strangers to farming accidents because he has got one leg, which he lost at two years of age. I, he lost his brother in 1960, at 25 years of age, who I was called after. And I lost my arm in, at, at 12 years of age. And then some people today maybe listen to this podcast and saying, but it'll never happen to me. But the problem is, is it could happen to you. And uh, I was just so glad that I was able to pick up the pieces and, and go on. But I want to say to you, mine is maybe a positive case of what you're looking at today. But I've been to many victims of farming accidents and it's anything but positive. It's an absolute life-changing disaster, if I can put it across in that way. It really is so hard to hear what you've been through, William. And Anne, you too have been through a terrible ordeal involving a bull. Tell us what happened. Yeah, uh, Karen, it's um, just a freak thing that can happen so quickly. It could, could have been anybody. It just happened on the day it was me. It was just 11 years ago now that um, my accident happened. I was driving home down a narrow country road near our own house uh, with my three daughters in the back of the car. It was about seven o'clock in the evening and um, I was just coming around a bend near our own roadway and the road was blocked with cattle out on the road. Um, I rang the neighbour. I couldn't go through them. I just stopped and put on the hazard lights because the road itself was blocked with them. They were running away from me rather than towards the car but uh, there, there was a lot of them and they were big so I thought the safest thing to do was to just stop in case any other cars were coming behind me as well. Uh, I rang the farm owner and he didn't get to answer. I'd say he was probably finishing milking or whatever. And I rang his brother. He must have been at work as well. He didn't get to answer. So I rang Lee, my husband. He was just finishing milking at home. So he came down a different road ahead of the animals to turn them back on the road. And again, there was another bad bend. So I couldn't see when they were coming near me. I had waited in the car for safety, as you'd think, and Liam just rang me when they were coming nearer to me then because I wasn't able to see them. And he said, just go down and open the gate a little bit and then you'll be back up to the car safe and sound. And I got out, I went down to open the gate. They got out through a ditch and the gate was still um, up, uh, blocking the entrance. So I just barely went down in the few steps into the field to open the gate and it kind of fell away in my hand. There was no sign up saying there was a bull in the field. And I felt, I, I thought the field was empty. I thought they had all left, but 
I actually felt the sensation of him coming towards me before I um, saw him. Um, I could feel the ground kind of shaking in front of me slightly to the left. And uh, then the next thing I felt was I was struck in the chest. I just felt the urine hot pain. I went up in the sky and then I landed back down on my backside on grass cow poo. <laughs> um, it was as quick as that. That's in a couple of seconds what happened to me. I was on the ground. I knew I was in pain. I had heard cracks and I knew that I was in trouble. But I also knew that if I stayed there, there was every chance he was going to. He was starting to kind of come near to me again. He was starting to froth and snort and stuff. So um, I just crawled. I was hurt, but I just managed to crawl out of the field, um, out of his way. And luckily by then, the cattle were going back in towards the field and they kind of distracted the bull a bit and um, Liam was coming along as well then so he had a stick with him and made the situation safer while I was out trying to catch my breath at the front of the car. Um, he knew I was hurt uh, because apparently I had screamed and I have no recollection of that at all but he um, knew that I had been hurt um, before he even got up to me. Uh, it was so it was what happened quick, next, Anne, you had three young children in the car they'd have been distressed having seen their mum hurt what what happened then they were upset in the car but they didn't really know exactly what had happened the smaller two were at the sides Ellen and Sarah Hannah was in the middle in the back and because there's no headrest block in her view she actually saw more of me being hurt than we even realized at the time I got Liam and we went back up to the house. As I say, we were so near home. Um, I, I knew I was hurt when we went to the hospital then. They did the x-rays and the whole lot and I had fractured my breastbone and fractured ribs and wrists and thumbs and things from trying to save myself. So that was the beginning of it. It's only afterwards, later on then, we realised that I had spinal damage from my neck to the base of my spine different ruptures and tears along the way down. That sounds like the kind of injury that will last with you 11 years on. How has that accident affected your life? Constantly in pain. I don't have a day or a moment without pain and everybody in the house is affected. Everybody anyway, the family, because girls and Liam are living with pain every day with me. These days I'm not able to get up or down the stairs. If the back goes into spasm, I could be on the couch or on the bed and I mightn't be able to move for a couple of weeks. I'm on heavy pain medication and relaxants, uh, injections. Liam gives me the pain injections and then in and out for different surgical procedures and every couple of weeks or months, depending on how I am. There's a lot of adjustment. I have to sleep downstairs a lot of the time and the life is just different. I mean, I'm more nervous in situations. I have to know where an exit or something is. I have to have my back to a wall, even in a restaurant. I couldn't have my back out to a, people passing or anything. I'm just scared of my surroundings. And it has affected the girls. They're nervous. They're looking out for me. And say like it's going on all, just 11 years now. So it's, it's part of life, but they've grown up with it since they were like four, six and eight, they don't know any different. It takes over, you can't be spontaneous in planning something or going somewhere. I have to have my brace on at night and I have to wear a neck brace and one for my lower back. 
I have to have those with me. So if I was out and ended up being laid back or something, the pain is worse because the body doesn't have time to realign for enough hours overnight. So you you just you have to plan, you have to be prepared. And that was all the physical part of it. That was before the, the mental part of it kicked in, really. I got about five years kind of being hopeful and in good form and being positive and have a lot of hospital procedures and making progress and still working part time. But I, I knew I was kind of not after dealing with things emotionally or psychologically. And I was bottling it up. I was trying to put on a brave face. The rest of the lads around like to keep going as well. But it just came to a head. I crumbled one day. I just the pain was exceptionally bad, but I just couldn't. I couldn't even talk like even friends at school noticed I was there, but I wasn't there. I just had a full mental breakdown. That was just six years ago now. And uh, it's just the enormity of it just took over. I had to stop and talk properly and openly to a therapist because I was only falsely trying to keep going but had to just stop and go back and try and get through it in a way that I could and actually deal with what happened. And nurture yourself and gain some of the confidence that, that clearly has lost and, and has affected your life. And thank you so very much uh, for talking to us about such a personal and, and difficult situation. Harry, your chair of the, the farm partnership, farm safety partnership rather, these are harrowing stories born out of split-second events they're, they're always this the time is always of the essence on a farm and you just think as, as william says it'll never happen to me and unfortunately that split second sometime it just could happen to you and and, and william's case highlights it and while william says he's a lucky one he's described you know the the complete differences is made to his whole family and that's generally the case in a farming accident because our farms are family farms and it, it affects the whole farm, the whole family. Have you ever had a close shave? Yes, I, I would say there's no one in the country who hasn't had that moment whenever they realise that was close. You feel the heart stops. And the important thing, if you're lucky enough to have that, is to learn from it. I think the whole, whole thing is, is actually take a moment and think about what you're doing. What happened to you? Well, I, I, I was actually um, working with a, a freshly calved cow. Again, went in to bring a, a the calf, wasn't moving, went to, to, to check it. And the cow lunged and hit the gate beside me. I, I was lucky in that the, there was a gate between me and the cow at the time. But at, at, the, at the same time, the gate could have sprung and I would have been sent to the other end of the shed and could have been hurt. But animals are unpredictable, especially, you know, bulls and, and freshly calved cows. And, and that's something you have to be very careful with. So what did you change about the way you farm after that incident? Well, calving pens are all now extra gits in them. I always keep a git between me and a, and a freshly calved cow. You know, you're you're just very wary. One family, my own sons, I'm continuously saying to them, you know, don't go into animals and, uh, on your own. Is it fair, Harry, you work so much with this um, farm safety partnership to suggest that Without the air ambulance and the amazing work that it does and the lives that it saves, the fatality numbers from fire accidents could be higher than they are today. I would say uh, probably our, our statistics are looking better this last couple of years because of the air ambulance, because at the end of the day, we only record fatalities. So like we don't have the serious incidents because they're not all reported. I would safely say there is a, a, quite a number of farmers out there 
lives still there today because of the air ambulance. And a final word, I think, to William uh, today. William, I think you are testament to what can happen in that moment when you make the wrong call. What would you say to farmers listening who think, it's not going to happen to me? Oh, Karen, it's a big question. All I can say to you is, is that through the loss of my arm today, and uh, you know, I, I sell machinery now, and it's, it's staggering to think that, that some of the cases that you were talking about today are actually customers of mine and friends of mine. And if, if, if it's the case that my arm coming off would make a difference through listening to this podcast today to save one more life, I would count it an honour to have lost it because we just do not want to read about another fatality or a serious injury. We can make a difference, we can reduce them, we can't stop them, but I'm just pleading with the people to take five more minutes and ask even the question, is this necessary? It could be the best five minutes that they ever decided on to make a life-changing something serious happening to them. William, thank you very much indeed. And thanks to everyone uh, today, William Sayers, Anne Doherty, Harry Sinclair and uh, Glenn O'Rourke. Powerful stories. Um, thank you too for listening today. Um, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, you can find the podcast link on the ABP Facebook and give us a share. In episode two of Now We're Talking Farming, we'll be looking at some of the future education and employment opportunities for the next generation coming into farming and agri-food. I'll be joined by a biology teacher who's also a beef farmer, a lecturer from Lockery College, a sixth former who wasn't able to sit his hay levels, and a graduate who's now working in the sector about what they believe are some of the defining milestones for a teenager's pathway to employment in agri-food. Till then, bye-bye.